Disclaimer. South Park is the property of Trey Parker and Matt Stone. All opinions voiced are our own and not theirs. The following program contains educational course language and due to its hilariously inappropriate content should not be listened to by anyone. and welcome to episode 19. My name is Sophie. And I'm Amanda. We've already tackled some dreamy topics and we're excited to bring you more. The South Park podcast is like nothing you've heard before as it dives into the complex social constructs and issues that South Park plays off. We hope you leave today thinking, I learned something today and had a chuckle. Today's South Park episode is season two, episode seven, City on the Edge of Forever. This episode touches on dreams and memories. Before we start, let's do a recap. We're going to read you the recap because you don't have time for that. The children are on the bus following a diversion along a mountain pass. When the bus nearly goes off a cliff, Ms. Crabtree goes out to call for help. She tells the kids not to leave the bus because a big scary monster will eat them. The kids remain there and remember past experiences. Scenes are shown in the boys' memories from episodes such as Cartman Gets an Anal Probe, Weight Gain 4000, Volcano, death, as well as moments from the episode itself. However, each of these memories is different from what had actually happened. For example, Stan is shown twice kissing Wendy rather than vomiting in panic when she talks to him. Kenny kills death instead of the reverse. Scuttlebutt's leg is played by Brent Musburger instead of Patrick Duffy. And Mr. Garrison shoots Kathy Lee Gifford because she is some kind of alien. In addition, at the end of all of them, the people in the memory eat ice cream, or some variation involving ice cream. After the memory ends, whoever was recalled saying, now that's what I call a sticky situation, and everybody laughs until the kids point out the actual conclusion that happened. Some of the memories are not from South Park at all. Fonzie's leap over a series of buses parodies the Happy Days episode, Fearless Fonzarelli. This is a reference to the fact that the actor who plays Fonzie Henry Winkler, is providing the voice of the monster. Later, when one kid in a red Starfleet uniform, a reference to the name of the episode, which was originally the name of a Star Trek episode, tries to leave the bus, a gigantic black monster really does jump out. After eating him, the monster lays siege to the bus, carrying off Kenny, who presumably dies. Miss Crabtree, on her journey, meets a roofie-peddling Elvis impersonator named Marcus, or Mitch, as it keeps changing throughout the episode. When trying to get help, he takes her to a club where Carrot Top is performing and Miss Crabtree insults him, appealing the audience. Marcus slash Mitch then takes her to an agent. He finds her funny and she becomes a comedian. She even appears on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. By now, she has forgotten about rescuing the children. However, she then quits, but the two remain close, Marcus slash Mitch. Back in South Park, Mr. Mackey convinces the parents that their children have run away and they go on TV trying to get their kids to return. The kids see their parents via a portable TV on the bus and are embarrassed. In the final flashback, Cartman recalls identifying his father, but he remembers it incorrectly with his father being John Elway. It is revealed 12 seasons later in episode 201 that Cartman's father was indeed a Denver Bronco, but not John Elway. When corrected by Kyle, quote, I thought your father was your mother because she had a penis, unquote. Cartman is angered by this and moves to the back of the bus to attack Kyle. This causes the bus to go over a cliff, break in two, and Craig to fall out into a trench. 
The bus falls into the trench as well, landing in a gigantic tub of ice cream. Cartman realizes how little sense everything makes and wakes up in his own bed. His mother comes in with breakfast and Cartman explains his dream to her. She then offers him some beetles for breakfast and they eat and then she says the beetles taste even better than ice cream. Just then, Stan wakes up in his bed, revealing that in fact, it was his dream. Then he calls Kyle to talk about the strange dream he had. Kyle claims Stan's dream is, quote, pretty fucked up, unquote, and offers him to go hang out with Kenny and Cartman in Happy Burger, to which Stan accepts. Meanwhile, Mrs. Crabtree and Marcus slash Mitch are shown sitting on a log near Stark's Pond. Mrs. Crabtree says she's enjoyed her time with him, and he claims that everything has been a dream by an eight-year-old child. However, Mrs. Crabtree still enjoys it a little longer. All right, first things first, happy birthday, Amanda. Ah! Because this episode comes out on your birthday. Oh, thank you, guys. You don't get to know how old I am. <laughs> so I guess it's kind of weird to be asking you this while we're recording now, but any plans for your birthday? No, not really. Probably just hopefully see my parents and spend the day with my boyfriend. Yay! Okay, so it'd be nice to present you with your birthday present to open on the show. But since we recorded in advance, I was really not quick enough to like order it. So I'm just going to show you a photo of what I ordered. And you're going to be like, oh, I'm afraid. It's a t-shirt. <laughs> so obviously you guys can't see this, but... Um, it's a really cute embroidered t-shirt. It's the Monsters, Inc. booze door open, and it says, put that thing back where it came from, or so help me, the bum, musical. Bum, bum. And we used to just have this personal joke where, yeah, exactly like that. We'd be talking and be like, put that thing back where it came from, or so help me. Bum, bum, bum. The other person would just start that bum, bum, bum. <laughs> oh, Monsters, Inc. And so when it comes, which might actually be around your birthday... I will give it to you. Thank you. <laughs> of course. I can't wait. <laughs> no, I saw it. Actually, weirdly enough, I saw it on TikTok and I was like, that's it. This is it. Yes. I've been planning this for months. Oh, yes. Well, I finally came up with like the perfect wedding gift to give you, but they don't actually make it. So I'm trying to figure out if I can make it. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm going to say. Ooh. <laughs> I like the mm-hmm. surprise. Anyway, it has been a dream working with you on this podcast and off. Mm. And I can't wait for another year of podcasting with you in multiple, multiple years. Yeah, you're stuck with me. I am. <laughs> it's the Sophie and Amanda. There's, there's no one or the other. No, we are the same person. Mm-hmm. But of course, I'm going to segue into my topic today, which is dreams. Did you have a dream last night? Oh, fuck. It's okay. I, I don't know, man. Often I have dreams that I'm like a spy on a mission and I have to like rescue people and like do things like that like I don't often dream about like normal life (laughs) I love that though yeah you know some people dream about like work and like random situations I dream about like I need to accomplish this mission or else everyone in the dream is going to die and then I wake up and I'm like did I do it (laughs) that's awesome you should write a book like that would be a really good book where am I oh yeah well actually 95% of dreams are forgotten by the time a person gets out of bed. We may not remember dreaming, but everyone is thought to dream between three to six times per night. It's thought that every dream lasts between five to 20 minutes. But that's actually cool that you remember yours. So dreams are a universal human experience that can be described as a state of consciousness characterized by sensory, cognitive, and emotional occurrences during sleep. There are several theories about why we dream. Are dreams merely part of the sleep cycle or do they serve some other purpose? Possible explanations include representing unconscious desires and wishes, like you really want to be a spy, (laughs) interpreting random signals from the brain and body during sleep, 
consolidating and processing information gathered during the day, working as a form of psychotherapy. Now from evidence and new research methodologies, researchers have speculated that dreaming serves the following functions. One, offline memory reprocessing in which the brain consolidates learning and memory tasks and supports and records waking consciousness, which really reminds me of Pixar's Inside Out mm -hmm. when they're kind of going through and it's like, here's all the dreams and here's all the memories. Preparing for possible future threats. So that could go back to kind of what you were saying about having dreams about going to work, where you're really stressed about going to work. So you're like having a dream of like, how could we avoid whatever I'm worried about? Cognitive simulation of real life experiences as dreaming is a subsystem of the waking default network, the part of the mind active during daydreaming. So basically, to put that in plain English, Dreaming and daydreaming are obviously the same thing. One, we're sleeping, one, we're awake. And basically dreams are just our daydreams while we sleep. Helping develop cognitive capabilities. Reflecting unconscious mental function in a psychoanalytic way. A unique state of consciousness that incorporates experience of the present, processing of the past, and preparation for the future. A psychological space where overwhelming, contradictory, or highly complex notions can be brought together by the dreaming ego, notions that would be unsettling while awake, serving the need for psychological balance and equilibrium. Now what about nightmares? Fun fact, the original meaning of the word nightmare was a female spirit who besets people at night while they sleep. Also known as a mare, it is a malicious entity in Germanic and Slavic folklore that rides on people's chests while they sleep, bringing on nightmares. Hmm. Fun fact. Nightmares can be triggered by many factors, including scary books and movies, stress or anxiety, trauma, sleep deprivation, insomnia is associated with an increased risk of nightmares. Some medications, including certain antidepressants, blood pressure medications, and drugs used to treat Parkinson's disease or to help stop smoking can trigger nightmares. And there's also other disorders like depression and other mental health disorders may be linked to nightmares. Nightmares can happen along with some medical conditions such as heart disease or cancer and having sleep disorders that interfere with adequate sleep can also be associated with having nightmares. But currently, the exact cause of nightmares is not known. But fun fact, you're more likely to have a nightmare in the second half of your night. AKA the witching hour, just saying. <laughs> I read somewhere, but I couldn't find the actual fact that when you have a dream with someone in it that you don't know, it's someone you saw throughout your day but you didn't notice, but your brain saved it. Because apparently your brain's not creative enough to create a fully functioning like character, I guess, in your dream. So yeah, maybe you were getting coffee and you know your eyes looked over and you saw someone and now they're in your dreams. Yeah, I can back that up. I heard it in a psychology class. Oh, perfect. Okay, there's my source. Amanda's psychology class. <laughs> so, the right and left hemispheres of the brain seem to contribute in different ways to a dream formation. Researchers of one study concluded that the left hemisphere seems to provide dream origin, where the right hemisphere provides dream vividness, figurativeness, and effective activation level. Which makes sense because your left brain is the thinker, the numbers, everything like that, and your right brain, or the right side of your brain, is the uh, creative one. A study of adolescents aged 10 to 17 found that those who were left-handed were more likely to experience lucid dreams and to remember dreams within other dreams. Hmm. Hmm, right? And lucid dreaming is when the dreamer is aware of that they are dreaming and they may have some control over their dream. The measure of control can vary between lucid dreams, and they often occur in the middle of a regular dream when the sleeping person realizes suddenly that they are dreaming. Some people experience lucid dreaming at random, while others have reported being able to increase their capacity to control their dreams. 
Since the days of Aristotle, experts have been looking into the meaning of dreams. In many ancient societies, such as those of Egypt and Greece, dreaming was considered a supernatural communication or a means of divine intervention, whose message could be interpreted by people with those associated spiritual powers. In modern times, various schools of psychology and neurobiology have offered theories about the meaning and purpose of dreams. Up to now, the frequencies of typical dream themes have been studied with questionnaires. These questionnaires have indicated that of rank order, 55 typical dream themes have been stable over different sample populations. We'll post the 55 themes on our socials, but I picked 10, and I'm curious if Amanda has had a dream with these 10 themes. Have you had a dream that you're falling? Yes. A person now dead, being alive. Yes. Being nude. Yes. <laughs> being chased or pursued. Yes. Losing teeth. No. Arriving too late. Yes. <laughs> Having magical powers. Yes. Seeing a UFO. No. Being an object. No. Being at the movies. No. And if I were to go through as well, falling, yes. A person now dead, being alive, yes. Being nude, no. Being chased or pursued? Yes. And it's always in like quicksand. I can't get away and it so, sucks. The worst. <laughs> Losing teeth? No. Arriving too late? Yes. Having magical powers? Maybe? Seeing a UFO? No. Being an object? No. Being in the movies? Yes. Weirdly enough, the only dream I can always vividly remember is being in the movies and then a T-Rex breaking through the screen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was also a fear of mine. I feel like I probably just watched Jurassic Park or something. One too many times. <laughs> <laughs> so some dream themes appear to change over time. For example, from 1956 to 2000, there was an increase in the percentage of people who reported flying in their dreams. This could reflect the increase in air travel. But what do they all mean? Let's take the 10 dream themes I listed and look up the meanings. Shout out to dreammoons.com for all of the definitions. Number one, falling. They said, you have no control and have nothing to hold on to. Fair enough. Okay. Two, a person now dead being alive, which they translate to, you wish they were still around to experience and share certain aspects of your life with you. Such dreams are most likely to occur during happy times or during important milestones in your life. Being nude. It reiterates that your concerns or anxieties are your own projections. No one will notice except you. You may be magnifying the situation and making an issue out of nothing. Nah. I've never felt more personally attacked. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till you hear the next one. Oh, God. Being chased or pursued. Avoiding some issues in your waking life. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I came here for a good time. Losing teeth. Teeth dreams may occur when you are in a new relationship, when you switch jobs, or during a transitional period in your life. Huh, I might have a tooth dream soon. <laughs> Arriving too late signifies your fear of change and your ambience about seizing an opportunity. Having magical powers. This one was really cool. I found a bunch of magical powers and what they say it means. So if you dream that you can fly, then it means that you are on top of the situation. If you dream that you can make things move by waving your hand, then the dream is telling you you need to put your ideas into action. It could also indicate that things in life have come a little easy for you. If you dream that you can read other people's minds, then it signifies that you have clarity in some situation or problem. You are experiencing peace of mind. If you dream that you can change the weather, then it refers to your ability to turn certain emotions on and off. Hmm. Number eight, seeing a UFO signifies your desires to find your spiritual purpose in life. 
Number nine, being an object. You're too active and not observant enough. You need to settle down and learn to listen. You need to be a chair or a spoon or something. You have the emotional range of a teaspoon. Number 10, being in the movies. Indicates that you're attempting to protect yourself from your emotions or your actions. And I feel very attacked by that last sentence. Mm -hmm. Now what we want to do for each episode is to provide you with a place to learn more. The COVID-19 pandemic appears to have illicit dreams which have aroused the interest of a number of research organizations, notably the Museum of London in the UK, in partnership with the Western University in Canada. The project, entitled Guardians of Sleep, consists of collecting dreams from members of the public and subjecting the material to analysis. The Museum of London is seeking to collect both objects and first-hand experiences to reflect Londoners' lives during the COVID-19 pandemic. This will allow us to keep a record and ensure future generations of Londoners will be able to learn about and understand this extraordinary period. This project will be considered for acquisition by the Museum of London as part of Collecting COVID for their permanent London collection. Also, we spend one third of our life sleeping, so invest in a good pillow. Hopefully one day we can get sponsored by a mattress or pillow company. But for now, ensure you have a good pillow because we cannot function on limited sleep. Okay, friends. So for those of you who don't know, I actually have a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology. So for this week's topic of memories, I'm going to take a more psychological approach. So I'm going to tell you about different experiments and different theories about how our memory works from a psychological perspective. So first up, there is a multi-store model put forth by Atkinson and Schifrin in 1968. This model suggested that information exists in one of three states of memory the sensory, the short-term, and the long-term stores. Information passes from one stage to the next the more we rehearse it in our minds, but can fade if we do not pay enough attention to it. So information enters the memory from the senses. For instance, the eyes observe a picture. All factory receptors in the nose might smell coffee, or we might hear a piece of music. This stream of information is held in the sensory memory because it consists of a huge amount of data describing our surroundings. We only need to remember a small portion of it. As a result, most sensory information decays and is forgotten after a short period of time. A sight or a sound that we might find interesting captures our attention, and our contemplation of this information, known as rehearsal, leads to the data being promoted to the short-term memory stores where it will be held for a few hours or even days in case we need to access it. The short-term memory gives us access to information that is salient to our current situation, but is limited in its capacity. Therefore, we need to further rehearse information in the short-term memory to remember it long-term. So an example of this is when you study for a test. You may know everything for that test in that exact minute, but do you remember it 10 years from now? Like the Pythagorean... The Pythagorean. Pythagorean theorem. Um, negative 2 plus or minus the square root of B minus... No, wait. You're way ahead of me. Negative 2 plus or minus the square root of B squared minus C over 2A or something like that. I. And it's negative 2 plus or minus the square root of B squared or minus 4AC over 2A. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> my AP math teacher is just upset right now because I have no clue. <laughs> Does that uh, make a triangle? Yeah. I don't even know. I can't remember. No, isn't that the one where it's like a squared plus b squared equals c squared? 
No, I'm remembering the quadratic formula. Pythagorean theorem. Yeah, you're totally right. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. What I'm reciting is the quadratic formula. Negative 2A plus or minus a squared to B squared minus 4AC. Yeah. <laughs> Over 2A. I think we couldn't have come up with a better example. Yeah. High school. Can't remember <laughs> shit. <laughs> Literally. We passed the test, but now, nope. Nope. So... In order to get things into the long-term memory, this may involve merely recalling and thinking about past events or remembering a fact by root by thinking or writing about it repeatedly. Rehearsing then further promotes significant information to long-term memory store, where Atkinson and Shurifin believed that it could survive for years or decades or even a lifetime. Fun fact, before Sophie and I started recording this episode, we began singing Memory from Cats Sophie knew two words. I could probably go in and recite the entire damn song because I was once in the musical Cats. So I had to commit that to memory. And so now here I am decades later, still knowing the goddamn words. <laughs> so moving on, we're gonna talk about the working memory model. So whilst the multi-storage model provided a compelling insight into how sensory information is filtered and made available for recall according to its importance to us, Alan Baddeley and Graham Hitch viewed the short-term memory store as being oversimplistic and proposed a working memory model, which replaced the short-term memory model. So the working memory model proposed two components, a visuospatial sketch pad, AKA the inner eye, and an articularly phonological loop, AKA the inner ear, which focuses on different types of sensory information. Both work independently from one another, but are regulated by a central executive, which collects and processes information from the other components similar to how a computer processor handles data held separately on a hard drive disk. According to Bailey and Hitch, the visuospatial sketchpad handles visual data, aka our observation of our surroundings and spatial information, aka our understanding of objects size and location in our environment and their position in relation to others. This enables us to interact with objects. So it gives us the ability to pick up a drink or to avoid a walking into a door which I still need to figure out personally. <laughs> Who put that door there? Mm -hmm. Put that thing back for where it came from, or so help me! Bum, bum, bum. The visuospatial sketchpad also enables a person to recall and consider visual information stored in the long-term memory. When you try and recall a friend's face, for example, your ability to visualize their appearance involves a visuospatial sketchpad. So when you're thinking of someone, you're trying to picture them in that mind as it's occurring. So everybody who's listening, try to do that. Try to picture someone, try to picture my man, Kenny. <laughs> Draw him in your mind. You're using your visuospatial sketchpad. Cool. Mm -hmm. The articulatory phonological loop handles the sounds and voices we hear. Auditory memory traces are normally forgotten, but may be rehearsed using the inner voice, a process which can strengthen our memory of a particular sound. Again, Memories all alone in the moonlight. <laughs> I was beautiful then. <laughs> okay, moving on, we're going to talk about Miller's magic number. So prior to the working memory model, U.S. cognitive psychologist George A. Miller questioned the limits of the short-term memory's capacity. In a renowned 1956 paper published in the journal Psychological Review, Miller cited the results of a previous memory experiment, concluding that people tend only to be able to hold, on average, seven chunks of information, plus or minus two, 
in short-term memory before needing to further process them for longer storage. For instance, most people will be able to remember seven digits of the phone number, but will struggle to remember 10. This led to Miller describing the number as seven plus or minus two as the magical number for our understanding of memory. This was also in 1956 where you actually remembered phone numbers. Yeah. Now I've got my cell phone, <laughs> area codes. Though I can remember like my best know, friends from when you were a kid. Yeah, like yeah. I can remember like our like our old like you know growing up phone number. But yeah, can I tell you what my fiance's phone number is? And no, probably not. <laughs> So, Miller's understanding of the limits of the human memory applies to both short-term in the multi-store model and Bradley and Hitch's working memory. Only through sustained efforts of the rehearsed information are we able to memorize data for longer than a short-term period. Which is where we move on to memory decay. So, following Miller's magical number paper regarding the capacity of short-term memory, Peterson and Peterson set out to measure memory's longevity aka how long a memory lasts without being rehearsed until it is forgotten completely. In an experiment employing a Brown-Peterson task, participants were given a list of trigrams, meaningless lists of three letters, for example, GRT, PXM, RBZ, RBZ, sorry, that wasn't very Canadian of me. <laughs> and they were asked to remember these numbers. After the trigram had been shown, participants were asked to count down from a number and recall the trigram at various periods after remembering them. The use of such trigrams makes it impractical for participants to assign meaning to the data to help encode them more easily, while the interference task prevents rehearsal, enabling the researchers to measure the duration of the short-term memory more accurately. Whilst almost all participants were initially able to recall the trigrams, after 18 seconds, recall accuracy fell around to 10%. Peterson and Peterson's study demonstrated the surprising brevity of memories in the short-term store before decay affects our ability to recall them. So moving on to flashbulb memories. So there are particular moments in living history that vast numbers of people seem to hold vivid recollections of. So for example, Sophie, where were you during 9-11? I knew this question was gonna come up. I was in Mrs. Brown's class and we were doing a show and tell where one of the kids brought in a cassette tape, that just shows how old I am, of Yellow Submarine by the Beatles and he was playing it. And of course, so England is ahead of the US, right? You weren't in Canada at that point. Yeah. No, I was just a bitty bitty kid. Um, <laughs> just a baby. I was like, that happened in 2001, right? Yeah, so we would have been five or six. Yeah, five or six. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, basically I um, was in class and obviously it would have been the afternoon. And we got the news and yeah, a teacher trying to explain to six year, five, six year olds what had happened was just, you couldn't. But where were you? I was, again, <laughs> in Mrs. Zachary's class or something like that. Grade one, I think. But for some reason, it always stands out for me because no one... So it happened, and all of the kids in our school got moved into the basement of the school. Oh. So I was like, why are we getting down here? And so you know in the city where we live... There's those two towers that are side by side. Mm -hmm. So my thought when the teacher said the twin towers have been crashed into is I thought that happened in our city. Uh, and you're like, why are we in the basement? Why are we in the basement? Like this, I started freaking out, right? So yeah, 
it's one of those moments where everyone can really picture exactly where they were, what they were doing, everything about the surroundings about them. Mm. And those are called flashbulb memories. So most people have events such as this that they hold unusually detailed memories about. For example, the death of JFK, the death of Elvis Presley, or the death of Princess Diana. And of course, as Sophie and I just talked about, the 2001 9-11 attack. Also, I feel like that's a bit of a generational gap right there. It's like... Yes. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you where I was when Princess Diana died. Oh, I can. We were shitting our pants. Yeah, we, <laughs> we were quite young for that. But I remember when the Queen's mother passed because I was at my grandma's house. And, of course, all the TVs, like, every channel you were watching just went to black. And it was like, we interrupt this programming as the Queen's mother has passed. And I just remember, I was obviously too young to understand. I was like, where's all the cartoons? And like everyone's like, oh my goodness, like, you know? And of course, when a royal passes, there's a lot of mourning periods that have been already set out, all the events A lot of stuff. protocol that you gotta follow, yeah. Yeah, so one of the first things, obviously, is that all the TVs will turn off, basically. But yes, so psychologists Roger Brown and James Cullick recognized this memory phenomenon as early as 1977 when they published a paper describing flashbulb memories, vivid and highly detailed snapshots often created, but not necessarily at the time of a shock or a trauma. We are able to recall minute details of our personal circumstance whilst engaging in otherwise mundane activities when we learned of such activity. Moreover, we do not need to be personally connected to an event for it to affect us and for it to lead to the creation of a flashbulb memory. Okay, so the final memory phenomenon I'm going to talk about is false memories. Sophie, do you think I could implant a false memory into your mind if I could make you fully believe that an experience happened to you that didn't actually happen to you? Oh, 100%. And the reason I'll say it is maybe because I'm a millennial, but sometimes things will happen, like let's say at work, right? Where you'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so did this thing and someone will say, they didn't. And all of a sudden, it's like my brain's like, I'm a liar. It's not true. So I could definitely see like false memories being yep. a thing. 100%. Uh. The idea might sound a little bit like it's based in a dystopian science fiction, but evidence suggests that memories can be manipulated. And I'm about to tell you about a psychological experiment where we did. Ah! So cognitive psychologist Elizabeth Loftus has spent much of her life researching the reliability of our memories particularly in circumstances when their accuracy has wider consequences, such as the testimonial of eyewitnesses in crime trials. Loftus found that the phrasing of questions used to extract accounts of events can lead to witnesses to attest events incorrectly. In one experiment, Loftus showed a group of participants a video of a car collision where the vehicle was traveling at one of a variety of speeds. She then asked them the car's speed using a sentence whose depiction of the crash was adjusted from mild to severe using different verbs. So this could have basically meant the cars brushed one another, the cars bumped into one another, the cars collided into one another, the cars smashed into one another. So bumped to smashed kind of sets up different ideas within your mind. Lotus found when the question suggested that the crash had been severe, participants disregarded their video observations and vouched that the car had been traveling faster than if the crash had been more of a gentle bump. 
The use of the framed questions, as demonstrated by Loftus, can retroactively interfere with existing memories of events. Another really fun experiment took place in 1997 when James Cohen demonstrated that false memories can be produced of entire events. So basically what he did is he gathered a bunch of individuals to participate in his experiment. He then gathered information, talked to individual family members of the person within the experiment, and got them on board. So what he did is he basically gave them information about a false account of an individual being lost in a shopping mall and being found by an older man and then eventually being reunited with the family. So they basically convinced people that this had happened to them, that they had been lost in the shopping mall because they got their entire family signed up for it. So they would try to be like, oh, this ever happened to you? And the people would be like, nope, nope, never. And then they'd go back and talk to their family and be like, do you not remember? Like, Uncle Johnny lost you in the mall when you were X and we took forever to find you. And your brain will actually start to create memories so that that makes sense within your own head. Spooky. Yeah. So when asked to recall these events, we'll actually fully believe that it had happened to them and were able to embellish on details of the story as if they had actually been there. You know, I it's not really some... I, mean, I guess it's like flashbulb memories. I guess, too, the other question would be about, especially going back to, like, criminal trials, of, like your memories when you're in trauma or you're in shock and how that can come and how your brain could make false memories to kind of block things. Oh, 100%. Your brain fills in things where it doesn't even necessarily... Have you ever read a sentence that your brain just filled in the sentence and you're like, that makes sense, and then you go back later and you're like, that did not make sense. Or a funny story about how at work we all looked at this one pamphlet and everyone yeah looks great we all read it and the next thing you know we had a pamphlet that was published that said confidential instead of confidential we all just brushed past it yep <laughs> that's your brain filling in memories so yeah it can literally trick you into believing whatever it wants you to believe and it'll fill gaps in and even too when multiple people experience a trauma what each person remembers is going to be different so that's really where the trouble with eyewitness testimony comes in. So to learn more, I highly recommend you check out the Netflix documentary. I feel like I'm just like, Netflix fund us. <laughs> Sponsor us, Netflix. <laughs> Netflix, give us free stuff. So the Netflix documentary Explained has an episode that is entirely depicted to memory. It covers everything we talked about and more. I highly recommend checking it out. Favorite part. Favorite part. <laughs> so now it's that part of the episode where we talk about our favorite part. So, Sophie, what was your favorite part? Of course, it has to be Miss Crabtree when she's like, we're stranded. Let's look for the what to do when stranded video. And it says, by now, you've calmed the children down and kept order by using the keep quiet or I'll kill the bunny technique. So it just goes to show, you know, there's a method to her madness. Yeah, yeah. She was actually, that's taught in school bus driver school to shut up or I'll kill the bunny. I literally lost my shit when it's like, and tell the children that there's a giant monster who will eat them. And then the fucking monster comes up. The fact that they've got all those training videos for everything reminds me of the episode where Cartman dressed up as Hitler and she had like the, all right, we're going to watch the video that says what to do if a child dresses up as Hitler. It's like, how many of these like videos do you have made? Why do we need these videos? Like this should be a self-explanatory. <laughs> That's just it. That's why we need it because it happened. Exactly. 
And how did Kenny die in this episode? Uh, so this one's kind of interesting. So my man almost beat death in a flashback, but ultimately we do see him get called off on the bus with the monsters. So we're just left to presume he died. Mm-hmm. However, I just watched a movie and it called out the trope. If you don't see them die... They don't die. They don't die. Well, I'm sure Kenny will be back for the next yeah, episode. exactly. <laughs> he always is. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you need us, me and Amanda are going to be drinking wine for her birthday. Whoop, whoop. We will be putting out episodes weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at Two Female Prime Ministers. Reach out to us and let us know what you liked, how we can improve, and share us with your friends. And if you really like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find us. We hope after listening to our show today, you thought, you know, I learned something today. Bye! Bye.